Well, good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bible to First uh, Peter chapter three, verse eight. First Peter chapter three, verse eight. We're in a series where we have been in Ephesians chapter four, and the themes we've been looking at are how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, uh, worthy of the calling of the gospel in general, but also how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the church. And the reason I want to take you to 1 Peter 3 this morning is because I believe in, uh, in this letter, Peter, the apostle, uh, he elaborates on and gives further information about how we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling and preserve unity in the church. And so, for my purposes this morning, I want to treat 1 Peter chapter 3 as an extended cross-reference to what we're studying in Ephesians 4. And we'll get right back into Ephesians 4 next week and look at God's plan for the church. Now, the primary thing Peter is going to do here, he's going to give us some attitudes, kind of like the attitudes Paul gave us, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerating uh, other people in love. He's going to give us some attitudes that we should work at growing in. But then he's going to spend the majority of the verses in the paragraph we look at today exhorting us not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. He's going to teach us about the law of non-retaliation, not taking our revenge. Now, here's the thing about that. On paper, that sounds like a good thing, and we respect the Lord Jesus for teaching it. We respect the Lord Jesus for teaching people not to take vengeance and to love your enemies. The problem with it, though, is that when you're the person who's been wronged, it's incredibly counterintuitive not to return insult for insult or evil for evil. And so we, we need some help here. We need grace. We need truth. And so what Peter is going to do is he's going to not only teach us not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but he's also going to motivate us. He's going to give us some hope and some reasons to work at growing in that, even though it is difficult. Uh, let's read the text together, starting in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read down to uh, verse 12. Uh, Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose uh, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What I want to do this morning is try to illuminate the text for you by asking and then answering four questions about the text. Um, uh, Non-retaliation is difficult. It's hard enough. But in addition to that difficult call, in this paragraph, there's some words that our uh, Protestant pastors and teachers disagree on how to interpret. And so, we actually need to slow down. There is an interpretive controversy I have to address here. And we have to uh, wrestle with understanding exactly what Peter is saying. And then once we wrestle that down, then we can work on application and its significance for our lives. So, our goal today, I'm going to ask and answer some questions, deal with the interpretive controversy. But our goal today is to be diligent about interpretation first, then application. That's what we're going to try and do. That's what I'm going to try to accomplish here. And here are the four questions that I want to pose and then answer from the text. Who specifically 
is Peter uh, addressing this paragraph to? In what social context is Peter telling us not to return insult for insult? And if I'm not supposed to take my own revenge, well, then what am I supposed to do instead? What's the alternative? And then finally, why should I love my enemies? I think there's, it's, we're not told to love our enemies in this passage uh, explicitly, but I think that's part of what's going on here. Uh, why should I love my enemies? So, first of all, who specifically is this paragraph addressed to? Well, we're jumping into the middle of a section of 1 Peter where Peter has been working out a thought. He's been working out a big argument, and, and that section of the letter goes all the way back into chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter gives us the instruction to keep our behavior excellent among non-Christians as part of our strategy for shining the light of Jesus into the world we live in. With regard to society, we are to keep our behavior excellent. But then Peter goes into very specific situations. With regard to the government, we are supposed to keep our behavior excellent uh, by submitting to the governing authorities. Uh, With regards to the household and the home, Uh, Christian wives are to submit to their husbands, and Christian husbands are to love their wives self-sacrificially and to have a sympathetic understanding for them that is willing to be a strength for them in their weaknesses. Um, And then uh, Peter has been led then by the Holy Spirit to speak to people in various situations. And here's the essence of what's been going on, okay? Peter has basically been saying, your goal as a Christian is to shine the light of Jesus into the unique situations that you find yourself in. So, whether or not you have a good government or a bad government, you're supposed to shine the light of Jesus in part by obeying the civil authorities. Whether you're in a happy marriage or an unhappy marriage, your goal should be to shine the light of Jesus in your family by obeying God's commands for husbands and wives. But now, Peter changes, and he says, verse 8, to sum up then, after having given all these specific instructions to various situations, to sum up then, all of you be harmonious. Now, when Peter says to sum up, you know this, he's not ending his letter, right? That's that's not an introduction to the conclusion because he still has like three more chapters of stuff he wants to say. What he's doing is he's summing up this idea that namely, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, you're called to shine the light of Jesus into your unique relationships. But now, here are some attitudes that all of you should have regardless of your situation. Married or single, uh, um, man or woman, our goal should be to be harmonious, uh, to love one another, to have a brotherly kindness for one another. And and here's what he says, verse 8, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And the question I want to ask is, what social context do these commands come in? Well, in secular Greek culture, the words that Peter used here are very much associated with family life, particularly the way the Greeks used words like sympathetic, brotherly, and kind-hearted. And so, I think that we should see the ambiance he's creating as giving us these commands within the church, but let me explain why I think it's within the church. The Greek word we translate as brotherly is the Philadelphia love, the love of the natural uh, family, love of, love of kin, natural familial affection. And I think the words give, the, the word brotherly gives the, the paragraph here an ambiance of us loving our brothers and sisters within the church with a Philadelphia 
love, being kindly affectioned to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think the word harmonious does even more to argue for the fact that Peter's addressing the church here, because the idea of being harmonious literally in Greek is being same-minded or being like-minded. And the problem with that is we can't be like-minded with the world. Uh, And so, again, I think the very command itself gives us the clue, hey, I think Peter's talking about within the church. Within the church family, I need to work at being harmonious, uh, arriving at the same mind as what Christ and the apostles taught so that I have unity with all who are truly following Christ. I need to work at having a brotherly love, uh, a Philadelphia love that enjoys my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And so, I believe that this is happening within the sphere of the local church. He's telling us, be harmonious with one another in the church. Uh, Love one another with the love of kin, even though you're a spiritual family, not a natural family. And it also reminds us here that the church should be a place of refuge and support where we do our best to act like a healthy spiritual family, right? All families have trouble, right? All families have some drama and some inner conflict, but we want to try as best as possible here at Grace Fellowship Church to be a healthy spiritual family where we're harmonious with one another, where we love one another with a Philadelphia love. Uh, uh, And there's a powerful sense of camaraderie that I believe we can achieve when we are agreed with one another and of the same mind about the gospel and the message of the gospel, when we share the same doctrine. Peter speaks also here of being sympathetic, being sympathetic with one another. Now, this word, sympathetic, it descends straight from Greek right down into English. It means to suffer with someone. We suffer with someone by bearing their burdens, by weeping with those who weeps. We, we, we suffer with one another. The, uh, the Latin word is compassion. It's a command to have compassion towards others. Now, When you think about sympathy, uh, there is actually a great enemy of sympathy, of the biblical idea of sympathy, I think, in our day, that is sort of silently making its rounds through our churches and our families and our relationships. And uh, it's actually not selfishness, even though selfishness is an enemy of being sympathetic to others, definitely. I think there's an even bigger enemy we're facing in our unique historical moment. Do you know what that enemy is? It's empathy. Does that shock you? Does it shock you that I would say empathy is the enemy of sympathy? Well, well, let me explain, okay? The word empathy wasn't created until the 20th century, and it doesn't mean to suffer with someone. It means to suffer in with someone. You're suffering in the, the, the same suffering. And so, if you were to ask the average Christian which is better, empathy or sympathy, I think a lot of us would just be confused. <laughs> We'd be like, I, I don't, they're both good. Why, are we, why do I have to choose one or the other? But I think if you, were, if you pressed somebody, and especially someone who's culturally aware, someone who's a, who's, who leans intellectual and likes to read books and keep up with the latest controversies on the blogosphere, and someone who's culturally informed, 
they would probably have the smarts and the cultural intuition to choose empathy because empathy feels like it includes sympathy but is actually uh, a, a bigger, supersized sympathy. It's, uh, it seems to us more virtuous to be empathetic than just sympathetic, as good as that is. But let me illustrate the difference for you. Suppose that I had a friend who was sinking in quicksand. Okay, what empathy would do is it would jump into the quicksand with both feet, and I would feel very virtuous for doing so because now I'm with my friend, I'm suffering with them, and I think they'll be grateful to know they're not alone and that they have someone uh, to be with them in the middle of their difficulty. Um, uh, one of the famous writers from the past has talked about how friendship, one of the things that friendship does is it cuts our sorrows in half and it redoubles our joys. It doubles the joys that we have. And so I might feel very virtuous for jumping in the quicksand with them so that they're not alone. But sympathy, in contrast, what sympathy would do in that situation is plant one foot on the solid ground and grab a strong tree branch, and then with the other foot, step into the quicksand and offer a hand to help the friend out. And here's the problem with that kind of sympathy. That kind of sympathy is offensive to our culture. And the reason it's offensive is because we've created counterfeit definitions of love and counterfeit definitions of friendship uh, where uh, we want everything to be equal, the worst possible outcome in the quicksand situation would be for the person in the quicksand who's hurting to feel like the person helping them might have been in a better position to help them and might have pitied them. That would be the worst possible outcome. And so when you give empathy uh, the way that the spirit of our age wants you to give empathy to other people, what you lose in terms of solid ground is the truth. You lose your contact with the solid ground of truth. And here's how it works practically. Let's imagine that someone you know uh, has been genuinely wronged. They, they really have been wronged by another person. They're hurting. They, they really are a victim of something another person has done to them. There's going to be pressure put on you, uh, maybe by them, but maybe by the people who surround them. There's going to be pressure put on you uh, to empathize. And if you do anything in the middle of that situation that would communicate that you're thinking, okay, hold on a minute, I want to be a shoulder to cry on, uh, I'm going to tend to believe their side of the story, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, I want to be there to try and see if there's any way that I can help out, but even as I help, I reserve the right to ask a few questions, a clarification, just to make sure I know what's going on, and I reserve the right to have some objective distance so that I can be objective about how to help them, that is viewed by proponents of empathy as a betrayal. Because if you're going to be empathetic, you will agree with the other person who's hurting immediately without any questions asked. And what's happening is empathy, honestly, I had some nice words in here about um, <laughs> how the people who want you to be empathetic aren't being malicious. They've been taught that by the therapeutic community. Uh, but having thought about it, I'm not going to say any of that. Some of the people who want you to show empathy are manipulators, period. And the fact that they won't allow you to keep some objective distance, that is not healthy. It is not healthy for them to demand that you join them in their grievance immediately with no questions asked. That is not healthy. It's not healthy for relationships, and uh, you don't have to give in to that kind of pressure because here's what sympathy does. Sympathy allows you to be compassionate. It allows you to help 
but it allows you to help in accord with the truth and not just let emotions be in the driver's seat. See, that's one of the weaknesses, I think, with empathy. It allows emotions to trump what is truth. And so, sympathy then, biblical sympathy, is very robust. It allows you to help uh, those who are suffering. It allows you to be compassionate towards them and to weep with those who weep, while at the same time helping people who've misunderstood what's happened or uh, seeing people who are trying to manipulate you, it, help, it allows you to help them walk in wiser paths. And so I would say, by all means, be sympathetic, be compassionate, bear other people's burdens, weep with those who weep, but you don't necessarily, as you do that, you don't have to feel guilt for not empathizing the way that uh, modern culture wants you to empathize with other people. Now, in addition to being sympathetic and compassionate to one another, uh, Paul or Peter also mentions uh, being uh, humble in spirit. You could also translate it humble-minded, having a realistic appraisal of yourself. Now, if you understand the gospel message, humility of mind makes perfect sense, because when you understand how much you've wronged God and how much He's forgiven you for, um, then you understand uh, when, when, when your sense of self-virtue has been humbled because you see what a sinner you are in light of God's law, it has a way of humbling you. It's a good thing. See, the message of the gospel comes to us, and it reminds us that you're not smarter or better looking or more virtuous than other people. Uh, You're actually a wicked sinner, and God chose to send you His Son in spite of your sin. It has a way of of humbling you. God didn't look down on us and say, I got to have her. Oh, man, I got to redeem him so he's on our team. No, he, he looked at us and said, even though they've sinned against me and hate me, I'm still going to send them my son. I'm still going to give them a chance to be reconciled to me. And so, what the gospel message does is it naturally humbles us. It humbles us of our pride and our, our sense of our own righteousness and our own virtue. And I believe that naturally also helps us become more gentle and more patient with other people, which is the connection we saw Paul make back in chapter 4, verse 2 of Ephesians. And so, Peter, he, he gives us this idea also of being humble-minded with one another, uh, and then he ends also with being uh, tender-hearted. And so, Peter gives us this list, verse 8, um, of attitudes, and then he adds this in verse 9 do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. And it's at this point that I want to ask the question, in what social context is Peter telling us not to return insult for insult? He began verse 8, and I'm saying based on the commands, the clues the commands give us, I think the ambiance of verse 8 is within the church, especially brotherly love, the Philadelphia love that Christians should have for one another, being like-minded. I think that argues for the church. Well, there are some pastors and commentators who, in their explanation of the passage, in the white space between verse 8 and verse 9, they would say that the context changes from having the ambiance of the local church to being when we're wronged by out there by people in the world, and let's say perhaps being slandered or ill-spoken of because of our connection to Christ. And so they would say, verse 9, not returning evil for evil, not returning insult for insult, primarily has to do with your witness out there in the watching world. And what I'm arguing is this. 
I would argue that verse 9 just continues the thought in the church. Now, when I get done, I'll say it at the start just for clarification. When I get done, I think he's speaking within the church. You should never return evil for evil outside the walls of the church either, okay? That, that's not, for the sake of your witness, you shouldn't return insult for insult, but a blessing instead for part, part of how you shine the light of Jesus into your relationships with people who don't know Jesus, okay? So, uh, let me clarify that. But I think that P- Peter is still talking about the church, and, and here's the reason why. Uh, the, commentators look at being wronged, and they think about Christians being wronged in the world And the assumption behind a lot of their comments and what I've heard other pastors preach in this passage, the hidden assumption is that no one's ever going to insult us or wrong us in the church. Now, let me ask you this question. Based on what you know of the New Testament, what you read in the New Testament, is that a true assumption? It's not. Now, now here, it's a logical assumption, and I totally understand it, okay, because I've had this experience too. It's very easy for us to look at the church and think, here's the one place on earth I can go, and I'll find people who love one another. There won't be any hypocrisy, and everybody will agree with each other, and there won't be any church splits, and I should be able to go, and, and it should be a safe place in the sense of there not always being constant conflict and no one ever insulting me or wronging me. The problem, and that makes logical sense, especially when you think about uh, the potential we have in Christ and with the Spirit's help to be a loving spiritual family, I think it makes perfect sense why you would think that. But if you allow what you read in the pages of the New Testament to set your horizon of expectations for the church, uh, if we do that, then what do we find? Well, uh, the church in Corinth was an absolute mess. It was full of divisions. There was open immorality going on in the church. They were taking each other to court and suing one another. Uh, The church in Galatia, they had left and departed from the gospel message for a false gospel that they were all uh, celebrating and preaching and teaching and believing in. Excuse me. Uh, And then when you get to Revelation, which is at the end of the New Testament era in the 90s A.D., uh, John has this, uh, this experience, this vision, where he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus uh, writes seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, and in those seven letters, he doesn't even like five of the churches. Well, okay, he likes them, he loves them unto redemption, but he doesn't like what's going on in five of those churches because of their trouble, and he calls them to repent. In the New Testament, the church faces all kinds of difficulty, and not just from outside, from uh, like a Greco-Roman world that doesn't understand them and persecutes them. The church faces a lot of difficulty from within. The church is full of people who are still in the middle of their own sanctification, which means they still are sinners, and their sin will impact the church, and it'll impact you. The church has some self-deceived people who think they're Christians, but they're not. And what that means is they're not regenerate, and they're not going to act regenerate in the church. Uh, The church gets infiltrated from time to time by false teachers who teach harmful doctrines and do harmful things. Uh, And so, changing our expectations for our experience in the church to have our expectations square with what the New Testament tells us the church is like, if we can do that, it helps us. And here's how. It helps us not to be devastated 
when trouble comes. It actually helps us to enter into the life of the church family with eyes wide open to the kinds of problems that are typical for churches to have from time to time, and it actually makes us more sturdy members in the life of the church because when trouble comes, we're not shocked, we're not devastated, and we're able to think through the issues and try to become part of the solution and not be part of whatever the, whatever the problem is, right? It helps us to stick in there and be sturdy members of a local church because we have realistic expectations for the kinds of things that are going to go on and the kinds of trouble the church faces. So, let me say this clearly. Once again, I just want to make sure I clarify. I am not trying to manipulate the social context of the passage in order to get around uh, the idea of not returning evil for evil outside the church. Outside of the church family, you should never return evil for evil. You shouldn't return insult for insult. We certainly don't want to do that for the sake of uh, promoting this gospel message that we believe in. But as a church family, we also want to become a community where we're not returning insult for insult and where we're not returning evil for evil. Um, And that makes verse 9, I think, a timely reminder for each of us personally, but also as we look at the state of the church in America and also as we use our social media accounts. See, my observation is I think at Grace Fellowship Church, we're a fairly unified bunch. I think we're, and I know that speaking for my family and myself, uh, I feel very loved by you guys, very encouraged by you guys. I don't feel like we have these, this, like these people in our church who are just relentlessly critical and constantly discouraging. I think we have a healthy, loving, fairly unified church family. But if you look at American Christianity outside of our church, it's not very unified. And one of the ways that I think could help us forward is by not punching each other in the face on social media when we're insulted, right? When, that, would be, that would be one way to do it, is not insulting each other back on social media accounts uh, when there's debates in the life of the church. Now, the challenge of this call to non-retaliation, don't take your vengeance, don't return an insult for an insult, it goes against our instincts. And not just our fallen instincts, but even the ways that we were brought up, right? I don't know what it was like, obviously, I, I don't know what it was like for those of you who grew up as uh, little girls, okay? But all of us who were boys, at some point, our fathers probably said something to us like, son, I really don't want you to start fights, but you, you finish them, right? And, and, and look, you can defend yourself on the playground. Peter's talking to adults, and what he's saying is, look, don't return insult for insult. Don't finish the fight with another insult, like, right? I need you to unlearn this thing that you learned as a little boy. I need you to unlearn this thing so that you're not returning insults when you feel like someone else has insulted you. And uh, Peter says, I want you to unlearn that. Uh, Now, let me be clear about this as well. The context here is speaking to each of us as individuals. And so, I want to clarify a couple things. First of all, this is not teaching against the appropriate pursuit of justice. It's not wrong to appeal to higher authorities for justice. It's not wrong to seek justice in appropriate ways. This is also speaking primarily to individuals. This is not speaking to nations and governments. 
It is not wrong for nations to do what nations need to do to defend themselves. Uh, the work that the police do in restraining evil in the world is noble work uh, when done right, when done correctly. And the same with the armed forces. The armed forces have a noble job of protecting their nation from other hostile nations. Uh, evil comes at us from individuals. Evil also comes at us in the form of nation states doing evil things. And the armed forces and the police, they have a, they have a noble job, if they do it rightly, uh, that they're, they're pursuing in opposing evil in the world. Uh, Peter isn't teaching against that. What he's speaking against here, though, is as individuals seeking, um, inappropriately seeking vengeance and seeking to ensure our own justice. Uh, um, uh, Peter is talking about when we've been wronged, not retaliating in a way that's vengeful. But the question then becomes this, well, if I'm not allowed to have vengeance, well, then what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, he says, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult or insult uh, with insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now, what initially what Peter says, I don't know about you, but it comes off as strange to me. Uh, don't take your revenge, but bless instead. And it's like someone's coming at us, I hate you. Well, the Lord bless you. And it's just like, what? That doesn't make sense. And here's what's going on. It's not so much that Peter is saying, well, with your words, give them some sort of benediction. That's not what's going on. The idea of giving a blessing is that we seek to do them good and not do them harm because they did us harm, right? So, I feel like they slandered me, and it wasn't just they misunderstood me. They intentionally misrepresented me, so now I'm going to slander them back. No, no, no. The, the idea of blessing here is I'm going to seek to do them good. What would that good be? Well, a couple things. I think one thing is we could pray for them, right? We can pray for them, pray for God to forgive them, pray, you know, if, if they're doing this to me, they probably do this to other people in their life, and they're going to destroy all their relationships. You know, Lord, save them from themselves. I, I don't want to see their relationships destroyed. We can pray for them. Uh, but then and also, the very situation you're in, it depends on the situation, but the main idea is that I want to have this attitude where even though they wronged me, I'm going to be forgiving, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to try to do, do them good. And doing good could be calling out what they did, it could be confronting them, but there's a big difference between gently, patiently, uh, respectfully trying to bring the issue up with them and just hitting them back with an insult, right? We all, we all know that there's a difference between that, and that's what Peter is pointing us to, that, that we do good. Now, this alternative is hard, and we need some motivation to do it. Why should I do this? Well, verse 9 starts to answer the question, uh, for you were called with this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Uh, and so, the idea is this, when you do good to those who insult you, you're actually imitating your heavenly Father, who is good to those who are evil and ungrateful. Uh, and God sees and He rewards it. He'll bless it. What kind of blessing might He give us if we were to choose to do this? Well, back in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Paul actually, uh, sorry, Peter has actually already taught in this letter that it finds favor with God when we suffer for doing good and we return good for evil. Uh, in fact, He gave us Christ Himself as an example that we should follow in His footsteps. He says of Jesus, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While being wronged, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Uh, Jesus patiently waited for God 
to vindicate and reward him. And so, the blessing you receive is that it finds favor with God, and he will vindicate you and reward you in the end. And then to drive the point home, Peter then quotes a section of Psalm 34 that teaches exactly what he's talking about. In verse 10, he says, quoting Psalm 34, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. Now, the life that the psalmist is talking about, that psalm was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for life that the psalmist uses there, um, the one who desires life, is not talking about biological life and not talking about long life. The word, the, word means, uh, the, the word means that which is really life, the good life. That's the word I was looking for. He, he means the good life. The one who desires the good life, life which is really worth living, life which is enjoyable, life which is blessed, must do this, uh, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. So, the idea would be this. Do you want to enjoy the good life? Uh, do you want to love the life you have and enjoy good days? Then keep your tongue from evil including the evil of returning insult for insult, and also keep your tongue from speaking lies. Don't speak the lies of slandering someone back because they slandered you first. Now, when I think about revenge, I actually think what Peter is doing here with Psalm 34 is really, really super helpful, and it helps, it helps me apply it to my, to my own life, because here's the reason why. The moment you start talking about not taking revenge… Uh, not returning evil for evil, the first thing that I have in my mind is men getting violent with one another, like in some kind of action movie or something, or, or what you read about in the paper, right? uh, people uh, resorting to physical violence. But here's the thing, you can get vengeance on other people by resorting to physical violence, but there's a lot of other ways to get your revenge, right? There's, there's way more ways to get revenge on others than just violence, And what is the most common way we like to take revenge on people? It's with our words. And so, I find it fascinating. Peter points to our words, right? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from speaking lies. He he exposes how one of the main ways people get revenge is with their words. And so, uh, he's reminding us, Psalm 34, don't use your words to get revenge. Keep your tongue from evil. In verse 11, he continues the quote, Uh, He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Uh, Turning away from evil and doing good, we have a name for that, repentance, repent of our evil inclinations. Uh, But one of the things I like about verse 11 is notice the way that he talks about peace. You have to seek it. You have to pursue it. He doesn't portray it as if peace Uh, comes naturally, as if peace is an easy thing. He portrays it as this thing that's hard. We got to seek it out. We have to pursue it. And certainly, we we don't want to settle for a false peace, but it makes the point that we have to actually work for peace. Uh, Peace, let me say this clearly about the church. Peace doesn't just happen in the church. It's made to happen. It's made to happen by the people in the church making the right choices and loving one another. And then look at verse 12. He, he ends the quote. This is all part of Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So if you choose to do good to others instead of returning evil for evil and insult for insult, it is going to cost you something. And here's what it's going to cost you. In the short run, it's going to feel like you lost and like the other person is getting away with it. Uh, It's going to feel like it costs you something. But in the end, they are not getting away with it. God is watching. Nobody gets away with anything. And here's maybe a motto that will help us all. Time and truth go hand in hand. Time and truth go hand in hand. Eventually, the things people do in secret, eventually the things people scheme uh, so, that they, so that they can accomplish evil without getting caught, eventually when people do that, eventually the truth comes out, either in this life or the life to come. The fact is, time and truth go hand in hand. <clears throat> and God sees, and He will reward when we do what's right. So, to clarify again, I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. God isn't saying you you shouldn't care about justice or that you can't seek justice appropriately, but what He is saying is this. When, When you choose vengeance, when you take securing personal justice into your own hands, you tend to be bad at it. And when you allow your emotions to be in the driver's seat, you do a really bad job. And so I think what God is saying in essence is just just stop and wait and let me take care of this appropriately in my timing. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Just let me handle this uh, and you don't insult don't return insult for insult or evil for evil. I think that's the essence of what we hear God speaking through Psalm 30. And the promise of Psalm 34 is that God is attentive to the prayers of the righteous. He's inclined to answer their prayers, uh, especially when they do right by not returning evil with evil. Uh, But He is opposed, on the other hand, to those who do evil. He's opposed to those who do evil by repaying evil. So, your excuse that, well, look, I don't normally do evil to people, but they hit me first. Look, you don't see me going around insulting others, but they provoked me, so I insulted them back. Like, that's not going to hold water with God, because He says, clearly, I don't want you to do that. I don't want that to be your habit. I know that 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 feels like second nature, but that's not what I want you to do. I want you to return evil with a blessing. Um, And He who calls all of us to follow Him uh, calls us to do good even towards those who've done us evil and insulted us. So, what you have then in Psalm 34 with the Psalm 34 quote is God motivating us. Let's be honest now. He is motivating us with the carrot and the stick. The carrot is God rewarding you with the good life, with His eyes being on you for blessing, with His ears being attentive to your prayers, with the inclination of His heart being to say yes to your requests in prayer. That's the reward. But the stick is that God opposes all who do evil, including those who were motivated to do it because someone else did evil to them first, and and that includes also those who were provoked but returned that provocation with an insult. Now, that I believe, that's my best effort to interpret the passage, how should we apply it now? Well, I actually think there's practical help for us in this paragraph if we'll just stop and meditate on the flow of the paragraph, and there's a key observation I want to make here. When Peter says, be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble-minded, verse 8, are those outward actions or are those inward attitudes? See, I would look at those and say, well, those are inward, those are inward attitudes. But when Peter moves on in verse 9 to say, 
do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Now he's talking about outward actions. And the observation I want to make here is an important one. Before Peter gets to the level of our actions and words, he starts down on the level of our heart attitudes, right? And that's a good clue for us for how to become the men and women that this passage is teaching us to become. See, one of the struggles we all have, and I certainly know I suffered from this earlier in my Christian life, I'll admit it, is that I would look at things like returning insult for insult or being an angrier person, you know, having an outburst of anger that I shouldn't have had, or becoming more bitter uh, than I, I wanted to be a forgiving person, but I found myself becoming bitter. I would look at the results of that and see that I was getting flunking grades, and I would be frustrated by that and discouraged by that. But the problem really was that I was getting flunking grades in verse 8. I was getting flunking grades in being sympathetic, harmonious, having a brotherly love that looked past my own world to be interested in the world of others, right? So, the way that you defeat this, if you, have a, if you have the bad habit of returning insult for insult, okay, the way you defeat it is you got to start down on the heart level with growing in humility, gentleness, patience, being harmonious, having a brotherly love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You start there. You start on the heart level. Then you'll get results out on the level of behavior, words, and actions. And let's say that you really want to grow in this. I think that um, the text itself gives us three ways to grow. First, verse 9 teaches us that our outward behavior, uh, what it should be, but the first step in changing that is growing on the heart level and also just agreeing with God's law. Now, I know many of you, many of you are members of Grace Fellowship Church. I'm, I'm pretty sure you already agree with this, but we do need to just stop and say, Hey, one of the first ways that we start in growing is by acknowledging that God's law is right and agreeing with it and making the commitment to agree with it and not to keep justifying and saying, well, look, I'm, I'm not going to do evil, I'm not going to provoke anyone, but if they slander me, I'm slandering them back. Like, part of what we have to do is repent of that way of thinking and agree with God's law. Step two, uh, in verse 11, Paul speaks of turning away from evil, and the New Testament word for that is repentance. Now, for repentance to happen, there has to be heartfelt confession when we've done wrong and a commitment to change. So, we start with agreeing with God's law, confessing where we violated that law, and uh, making a commitment to change. But you know, if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you know that while you can agree with God's commands and confess what you've done in the past and desire to change, at least when you're in your right mind, when you're at church on Sunday morning in your right mind, you want to change. Maybe not Monday morning, but yeah, Sunday at the church, yes. Uh, that you can have all those three things and yet get out in the week and still do the wrong thing again. Something else is needed. We still fail. And so, step three, verse 12 we ask God for help, knowing that He's attentive to the prayers of those who agree with His law and want to change. The fact is, we can agree with His law, <clears throat> we can confess we've done wrong, we can want to change, but in the end, we need God's help. In the end, in the end what we need is His grace, because we can't overcome this sin all on our own, all by ourselves, with only our own resources. We need God's help. Uh, we need God to give us not only the grace of forgiveness for when we've returned evil for evil in the past, we need God to give us the grace of 
transformation so that we would be people who return that evil with a blessing. And so we go to Him humbly confessing our inability and asking for His help. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ died actually so that we could live this way. Christ actually died to help us overcome this. And I'm not making that up. Peter says that in his letter. In uh, chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says this, Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross so that, that purpose clause, He died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We might die to returning insult for insult and live for righteousness. Christ died to help us overcome this, as well as dying to forgive us of our sins. Back in chapter 1, verse 18 of this letter, Peter informed us that the good news of Christ, the good news of Christ ransoming us, is not just that He ransoms us from the guilt and the penalty of our sin, but that He ransoms us from futile ways of living that we've inherited from our non-Christian forefathers. He, He His death on the cross saves us from futile ways of living, like living for vengeance, right? That's one of the futile ways of like getting caught up in a cycle of revenge where it turns violent and someone dies in the end. He saved us from living in that kind of futility where we return insult for insult and have a whole bunch of uh, relational carnage and broken relationships in our background. Uh, His death not only forgives us for our sins, it it is meant to help us overcome these cycles of vengeance. And so, uh, we're ransomed from returning evil for evil. We're ransomed from the cycle of evil it produces. And if you want to change in this way, here's the good news that I'll end with. There is grace and mercy to help you. There's grace that God gives to help you overcome your sinful inclinations. Let's pray.